This is In Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of In Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from a different corner of our global network of experts. Hello, and welcome to In Focus Sport from Control Risks Specialist Risk Consultancy. I'm Alicia Fitterman, an Associate Director in the Compliance, Forensics and Intelligence team here at Control Risks. In each In Focus Sport episode, my colleague, John Brown, the head of the forensics practice across Europe, Middle East and Africa, will sit down with a guest to discuss their views and insights on a range of current themes linked to the integrity of sports. Today, John talks to Thomas Sangard, the CEO and founder of medical device company Zynex Inc., who acquired Charlton Athletic in September 2020, right in the midst of the pandemic. They talk through Thomas's career, his love of rock music, and of course, the club takeover and its associated challenges. They also discuss football club ownership more generally, with Thomas providing his view on the attributes required to run a club successfully. So Thomas, firstly, thanks for joining us today for the Control Risks podcast. You bought Charlton Athletic back in September of last year, which I think was actually your first involvement in football. So if you could start off really by talking through your background prior to Charlton, so your business background, that'd be interesting for us. Yeah, that started already in my very early 20s with a degree in electrical engineering. I um, worked at various companies, first in engineering, also got myself a four-year MBA on um, top of that. Later worked at companies like Siemens, Philips, and ITT, all very large multinational corporations. I uh, found myself working for the smaller uh, medical device company in the uh, mid-90s and got the opportunity to distribute those products into North America and took the chance to move to the United States and, and literally started in, in a one-bedroom apartment and bootstrapped my company up to what it is today. It's, it's, it's worth nearly a billion dollars and publicly traded on NASDAQ. And since the early days of importing medical devices from different parts of the world, I've developed my own products and still obtain patents and all that for, for things I invent. Also, before I entered into my business career, I played a lot of music, played on big stages, worked in recording studios and all that. So I got business uh, and music and now had the opportunity to get into English football. I'm so, so happy, I should say lucky that Charlton was the perfect opportunity to get into English football. Have you always had an interest in football? And if so, what was it that then took you towards football club ownership? Well, when I was a kid, first grade, etc., kicking the ball around in, in backyards to playing in Denmark, won a championship, etc. Et, et but what typically happens around the age of 17, 18, you, you're busy doing other things. Music started taking over too much in, in, in my case and school, etc. So I kind of lost it. There. I've, I've always been watching English football, uh, the Premier League in particular. And it was not until um, June of this year, I believe, that a friend I have in, in Los Angeles asked me if uh, I ever considered owning an English football club. And I was like, no, but that sounds interesting. The reason he asked was he knew an attorney in London that was working or had spotted an opportunity over at weekend next to Manchester that they were going into administration that could be interesting to look at. That was literally my window into, so what is this all about? Because I called this attorney and said, what's, what's that? It took from uh, July when I really got into it and until um, the last week of September before that deal closed. 
So you mentioned Wigan, I think, first of all, which is a club I think they're still looking for an owner, actually. What was it that took you from Wigan to ending up with Charlton? We were actually in the process of talking to the administrators and, and, and placing a bit that they, uh, they, they actually appreciate. But I, I pulled out of that one and started looking at other clubs. I wanted to see if there was something that from a football perspective and with less restrictions would would make for a better entry in English football. So Sunderland, Coventry, many other clubs, at least half a dozen clubs uh, was what I looked at. And Charlton was one of them. It basically checked all the boxes. The potential, the brand that he carries, the amount or the size of the fan base, they have more of a solid history of presence in the Premier League, etc. So uh, the only thing that was missing here was the ownership situation and you call it a state of affairs in, in the boardroom. thought, I, I can fix that. And there was just a matter of, so let's see what we could do. Uh, but there was already a lot of uh, consortiums and people looking at potentially acquiring them. And then there was a the whole situation with maybe, maybe not having sold at least the holding company, not the club, to a couple of people out of Manchester. And no one wanted to talk to me. Hmm. What do we do here? Because uh, time was running out. A little over a month left, so um, I decided to just start a Twitter campaign. It's a very powerful tool these days. <laughs> the fans loved it, and because of that interest, that woke some people up. That's how it all started. It's quite an unorthodox route to starting to own a football club then in that case. Do you think that there are lessons that you learn from business and music that maybe were helpful in, in the process of negotiating for the club and then will be helpful in the process of you owning the club? So my experiences in music came between when I was 13, 14, and till when I was 23, maybe 24. And I obviously learned uh, to how to organize things, how to create sort of a promotional effort around a band or a studio and things like that, or, or a concert. And I learned to deal with a lot of very different people, you know, sometimes very difficult people in that industry. So that is obviously something that has helped me throughout the years. But I would say many of my business experiences, especially working for companies like Philips and ITT, I've learned pretty much any any trick in the book in terms of playing political games, whether it's inside an organization or, or with businesses that you have relationships with, it's a strategic partnerships and all those. Buying a club in the midst of a pandemic, that's quite a brave, brave move. I can only imagine that there'll be a, a large number of clubs where maybe the ownerships are not doing so well financially. And just looking at the wage caps that we have imposed, but also in terms of their financial abilities, that Charlton will be in a better position going forward after the pandemic. I think strategically, it was actually a good time. It's, it's costing a little bit of money, but it's costing everybody some money. For fans, it was quite a terrifying place to be because the club itself was quite close to administration when you actually were able to complete the deal. So could you talk us through the sort of priorities you had when you came through the door to make sure that that situation was avoided? Well, the main thing was obviously having failed a relationship with the EFL well before the takeover. So we could literally on the same day get the embargo lifted. We had a first team that was pretty much decimated. There were some under 23 players and maybe players that were hard to sell. That was my first priority, was to make sure that the leadership of the club, building a first-team squad, we got a decent team put together. I think we're back to being a pretty good position now because we can be more strategic about it, do things in a more orderly fashion here in the January transfer window to complete the teams. And now I believe we have a, a team that's strong enough for promotion this year. And what are the biggest challenges you faced in your early period? I would say making sure we got play, uh, players on board. We, we also had a situation that already started the year before with a lot of injuries. 
And that was the same thing here after the transfer window. So one of the first things that did was to take a, a hard look at the medical side, the whole medical sports science team, as they call it. And we made some changes there and, and some significant improvements. That's going to help us going forward, whether we play in League One or Premier League. What I also did was to make sure that we, uh, we started building for the future, both on the, um, in the back office or the commercial side, as well as uh, in terms of sports. So I had Jed Wrighty to start as a technical director and start building so that we would be ready for a presence in the Premier League five years out, as, as well as on the commercial side. I got someone in that has had a lot of experience dealing with clubs like Liverpool, Manchester City, etc. So that's already beginning to help in terms of sponsorships, etc. because it, it takes money to run a football club. The rest is pretty much business as usual. And we just keep making marginal improvements all the time. We made a lot of strides, partly because of COVID, because we, we do have some income from uh, live streaming of our games. So when I took the club over, the average attendance was about 1,200 viewers per game. We are now at approximately 6,000 viewers per game. And one of the first things I did was to work with our commercial director to set up a much more professional, more Sky Sports-like presentation, high-definition TV, etc. Because what we had had before was, was very pro quality. That really improved the experience. After all, we've got to remember, we're in the entertainment industry, right? So the entertainment's got to, it's got to be presented as, as professionally as possible. And, and that has certainly been part of in, in increasing the viewership. There was a brief period where fans were obviously allowed back in stadiums and you got quite a rousing reception. So you must be excited about the thought of getting fans back into the Valley full time. Yeah. And even if you just get a few thousand in, it doesn't have much of a financial impact versus a full, fully packed 20,000 and something fans in the stadium. But just getting them in, getting the feel that that backing for the team. So it, it's not like a neutral stadium playing at, but you actually feel you're playing a home game. I can't wait to, to see that. Let's hope we're there. There are signs that we, we might be there before the season ends. And I guess it's the first kind of musician that's that's run Charlton. Um, you'd be the first person that would be able to actually write some decent decent chants. Is that something you're going to do? <laughs> yeah, why not? There might be a right time, you know, when we get promoted or something like that. <laughs> And then just to finish up, there's there have been some kind of horror stories about club owners in, in recent years. What do you think it takes to be successful? I, I appreciate it's early in the journey for you, but what do you think are the kind of personality traits that it takes to be a, a successful owner for a club like Charlton? I, I think the way I have approached business pretty much all my life, but it, it certainly shows here that during the last 25 years with, with Sinex Medical in the US, that if you always focus on, always do the right thing, Sometimes you need to cut corners, but don't do it unethically or anything like that. You always come out ahead. And I've seen some very large competitors in our industry over here basically go out of business or, or be close to nothing today simply because they've been cutting corners where they shouldn't have. And we've, we've never done that. So always do the right thing. And when it comes to, to football, there's so much money in, in European football, English football in particular, that... It sometimes attracts people that are not necessarily in it for the football. You should say that football club owners should obviously want to be able to make a profit, which is one thing. But we've seen situations where people have been able to take ownership of a club for just one pound. Already there, you're going, something's wrong here. That could potentially be that a site deals with previous owners, etc., to maybe uh, get rid of some debt that they shouldn't have been able to get rid of. But more than anything, it, it allows people to get in and have access to the cash flow within a club. And there's a lot of money flowing 
floating around. So what we have seen with, with various clubs, including Charlton, that it's been possible to, uh, to to take a lot of money out of the club for personal use and sell assets to be able to fuel personal consumption. So it's, it's, it's very similar to if someone buys a charter school or a border school and strips it for assets and let it go in, into bankruptcy. And in the meantime, they've been able to benefit personally from that. It's as unethical as it comes, especially in football. You, you leave the whole fan base in the dirt. It's too tempting for that kind of mentality to get into the business of football. There's so much money around. And there's a window or a door open in, in this industry that makes asset stripping very easy. And it's amazing what's been taking place. Thanks, Thomas. I think we could have a whole podcast just on that final topic alone. It definitely collides with my world. Unfortunately, that is all the time that we do have available today. That was genuinely fascinating. So thanks a lot for taking the time to speak with us and all the best for the remainder of the season and beyond with Charlton. Okay. Thanks, Jonathan. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of In Focus, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe to our other podcasts as well such as the Global Insight, our fortnightly panel discussion exploring the impact of the most pressing issues on global business. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we are helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.